Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Murray, and uh, good afternoon, brethren. Nice to be back and see all of you. And that was a lovely hymn. I, I'm not familiar with that hymn. A lovely hymn. Enjoyed that. Uh, in, in reminded me very much of the experience that I had in the UK. Uh, we visited the UCG congregation while we were there for two Sabbaths. And they uh, send their love, very loving congregation, beautiful ministry there, beautiful brethren. Uh, I would not know any different that I'm in a CGI or a UCG congregation. It's all brethren. The only difference was they have a different hymnal. And uh, the, the hymns were just lovely. Uh, our hymns are lovely. Their hymns are lovely. I'd love if we could just combine them and, uh, and sing them all. Did have a, a, a wonderful trip to the UK. It feels like we've, we've been away a while, uh, but it was great. Our whole family went, and my wife just has a lovely family. A big family, eight children, uh, six of whom are in the UK and living all close, close by with their children and children's children. And so it's a, it's a real tribe. And everybody loves each other. They are happy to be together. They're, they're true friends. They're not just family. They're friends. And it's just great to be in that, that environment. And all of the uh, in-laws uh, have kind of been grafted in uh, to this tribe. And it's just a wonderful experience. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 19. It reminds me of this scripture. Matthew 19, I think I've shared with you that uh, my family was dysfunctional. And a lot of violence and uh, divorce and just it was a dysfunctional family. And not only that, but in my path toward God, I gave up everything. I lost everything uh, to pursue God. And, and when I think of my experience now where I am today, I think of Matthew 19, verse 27, where Matthew writes, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say unto you, that you which have followed me, in the regeneration, that's the rebirth, the, the life after this one, when everyone is born into God's family, in that world, in the world to come, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this world is passing away, a new world is coming, and, and those who get it, and are willing to forsake all these, these 12 disciples, uh, Judas being rejected and being replaced, uh, they are going to sit on the thrones with the king. But verse 29, and everybody else, and everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. And I certainly feel like that already, that I've inherited a hundredfold uh, for what I gave up. But he's really saying that's to come. So it's just a taste. I just have a taste today of this family that we're going to be born into in the near future. I'll say that as much as I enjoyed the family time, uh, I am more concerned about Western civilization than I was before I left. So I was there two years ago, and I could see the writing on the wall. Now it's all over the wall. It's on the sidewalk. It's everywhere. Uh, England is gone. I give it 10 to 15 years before it's no longer a Western civilization, Western part, of, part of the Western civilization. Probably still be England, but it will be something else. And I don't know. People, when, when sort of like, it's the frog boiling syndrome where you just don't notice what's happening. But I go there and I see the older generation of Christians dying off. The younger generation rejecting Christ and becoming secular. And then the Muslim population just reproducing. Almost everywhere I see women pushing a pram and having two or three children in tow. And I just think 15 years from now, what's England going to look like? It's changing. And that's not unique to England. It's all of the Western civilizations seem to be going through something similar. 
I did have a chance to talk to my brothers-in-law and had a similar conversation three years ago. But this time I think it's starting to get through. And, and they're beginning to see that, yes, uh, there is a bit of a problem. While I was there, I saw this article in the paper. The headline, University Students Demand Philosophers Such as Plato and Kant Be Removed from the Syllabus Because They Are White. Goes on to say, they are said to be the founding fathers of Western philosophy, whose ideas underpin civilized society. But students at a prestigious London university are demanding that figures such as Plato, Descartes, Immanuel Kant should be largely dropped from the curriculum because they are white. The student union at the School of Oriental and African Studies insists that when studying philosophy, the majority of philosophers on our courses should be from Africa and Asia. George Orwell, the author of 1984, said the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And, and that's what we see happening. And this is just so incredibly foolish that we cannot deny reality. If these men's ideas shaped our society, then it behooves us to understand their, their thinking, to understand their philosophy, so that we can understand how the world runs, how our society came to be what it is. It might not be right, but it's reality. So to deny history is to deny reality, and that's where we're heading. Let's go to the text for today, Matthew 24, verse 15. Where it says, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. And then in parenthesis, whoever reads this, let him understand. And so it's, it's a text that's crying out for us to pause. And not just read over it and sort of like, well, I kind of get it, and just keep reading. It's a text that causes us to stop, and to, to your prayer earlier, Becca, to ask God for understanding, recognizing that maybe we don't fully get this, but it would be, it would be careless to say, well, I don't fully get it, but I'm just going to keep reading. When the text is crying out for us to stop and understand it. Now, clearly, this is a prophetic text, but I don't want us to think about it that way. You know, some people look at this and they go back to Daniel and 70 weeks and they divide up the weeks and all these calculations each week is a, is a year and, and they come up with 490 years and, and try to become these experts trying to predict when Christ will return. I don't think that that's what God is asking us to do. I'm going to propose, and I'd like to use the sermon time, to show that this is about ideas. This is about the collision of ideas. And this is why it is so incredibly wrong to forsake teaching philosophers like Plato and Descartes and Kant when they have shaped Western civilization. These are the ideas that have shaped our civilization. Of course we should study it. And to understand this text, we need to understand the ideas that are shaping our world and how these ideas are colliding. Because this text is about the collision of ideas. We traditionally have thought about the Bible as you know, part history, part Christian living, part prophecy. And we sort of break it up and divide it this way. I want to propose that we don't do that. 
No such thing. There's no such thing as sort of history over here and prophecy over there and Christian living in the middle. This is not so. There's one text. There's one text. And it's the narrative. That's why I appreciated the youth study so much today because we're bringing to the youth the narrative. If we understand the story, then we understand what God is doing in the world. And we cannot be deceived. This uh, young lady, her name is Erin Langworthy, she went bungee jumping over the Zambezi River. And she jumped a distance, they say, three or four football fields. And as she was jumping, the cord snapped. And she fell into the river where apparently there are crocodiles. And I think this is very symbolic of our situation. We have to jump and plunge into the future. And there are crocodiles out there. And we need to stay connected to God through faith. And if we allow this threefold cord of history, prophecy, Christian living, if we allow it to separate, it'll break. But if we keep it together, we will stay connected and stay away from the beasts that want to destroy us. Matthew 13. In verse 10, the disciples came to Christ and said to him, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he answered and said, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not given. For whoever has, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever does not have, from him shall be taken away even what he has. So this is a very uh, frightening scripture. That there are people walking around thinking they have, and they don't. And the little that they think they have, God will take it away. On the other hand, if we have, and we really fight to hold on, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will give us more. So this is a real effort that we have to invest in, to hold on to these scriptures and keep digging deeper, keep getting more. And God will bless us with with more understanding. So let us dig into this text. And I don't have all the answers. But I want to just give an angle as we move toward Passover to say, let's look at the text as one text. And that, yes, it's prophetic text, but it's also historical. And it also has everything to do with Christian living. And let's look at the text this way, that we cannot separate it. It's one narrative. I'm going to kind of go around the houses a little bit. You're going to say, like, what does this have to do with the text? So, but I promise you I'm going to come back uh, to the text. But I just want to give some context before we come back to the text. I said that I believe this is a text around the collision of ideas. And that's about conflict. In order to have conflict, you basically need ideas. You need to inject ideas in people. And you need to mobilize those people to stand for something and to stand against something and and to mobilize them to the point where you can put them into war and they they, they give up their lives for your purpose. That, That really is done through ideology. You need a good rhetorician. You know, I was looking at Hitler the other day and just how he mobilized the German nation through rhetoric and through ideology. That, that kind of, um, Force needs to be justified through ideology. And that, that's what men do. We see today, eight years later, as President Obama is coming to the end of his term, first black U.S. president, and America suffers from the worst racial tension in decades, maybe unprecedented How is that so? I thought having a black president would make things better. It's made it worse. What's happening? Why is there so much conflict in society now? Black against white, 
men against women, young against old, immigrant against native. What's going on? Why so much conflict? Let's go to Genesis 10. Genesis 10 shows us where this was initiated post-flood. I mean, it goes right back to Adam, but post-flood. Genesis 10 and verse 8, scripture that we've been over several times, that Cush begat Nimrod. And Moses spends a lot of time talking about Nimrod. He's like, this is a very significant figure. He kind of talks about everyone else who begat who, but he pauses on Nimrod and tells us quite a bit about him because he is the source of conflict, of ideology that results in conflict. He became a mighty one in the earth, so he was conflict-oriented. He was a mighty hunter against God. Therefore, it's said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against God, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So, so Babylon is where he started. And it's like force is how he reigned. So this king started to build an empire to gather men, to mobilize men through rhetoric and ideology, and put them into conflict to overcome others and subjugate others and build a kingdom. So the beginning... This is a kingdom that's spreading, but it began in Babel. And the ideology began here. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh. So you see this ideology spreading through conquest. And the city Rehoboth and Kala. And resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So even to this day, this land is full of conflict. It's never at peace, because this is, this is where the ideology of conflict really began. Chapter 11, this ideology that supports political oppression spreads over the whole earth. So, he was, so the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. If we read between the lines, a lot of people lost their lives. You don't agree with me? I'll kill you. And that's all there is to that. We are the mighty people. And you can just picture Hitler as he galvanizes the German people and gets them to believe that they are superior. And it's their way or the highway. And then they spread out and start conquering all over. That's, how, that's what you can see here. An ideology of conquest and subjugation. But this is not the way it should be. This is not right. Look at Genesis 1. You know, God mourned mankind before the flood. And then after the flood comes Nimrod. And no doubt God was mourning again. But he, did, he promised not to send a flood again. Genesis 1 and verse 26. Pastor Murray in his prayer spoke about our purpose. And putting on the mind of Christ. Which speaks to... Genesis, what Moses wrote here in Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, <clears throat> let us, that's the ancient of days and the word, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is the purpose that we are made. And, and billions of people on the planet running up and down, upwards, sideways, and round and round, and they're ignoring this. And there's an emptiness inside because they're rejecting the very purpose for which we are made. We are made to be in a, a family relationship with our father, worshiping him, reflecting his glory into the earth, facilitating relationships with our family and our father, and ruling over the earth. In other words, we were created to be king priests. And Adam was a king priest. And let them have dominion. So they're going to be in our image, reflect our glory. 
And then they're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. They're going to be a vice regent with God. They're going to extend God's authority over the earth, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So this is how man was to be functioning on the earth as the vice regent of God. And again, when I go to my family in the UK, and I see the patriarch, and all the descendants from the patriarch, and everybody loving one another, that is the image of God. That reflects God's glory. And that's what God wants us to see as we look at one another, that we see the glory of God. As we look at one another's families, we see the glory of God. And yet there are these ideologies that are creeping into our society that are destroying the family, that are turning children against parents and parents against children and shattering the love between a husband and a wife and exalting LGBTQ and every other letter. That's great. We have to protect that. But we destroy and insult the family. And we we do everything we can to destroy the loyalty between a husband and a wife. All to shield us from seeing the glory of God that we were created to reflect. So God created man in his own image. In his own image. In the image of God, God created him. Male and female. The man and woman together reflect the glory of God. He created them. And man refuses to accept this glory, to accept this exalted position. Instead, what man does is he turns to idolatry. He turns to idolatry. He, he, instead of having this direct relationship with God and being a king priest on the earth, reflecting God's glory, man prefers to bow down to idols and worship idols and give glory to idols. Man will give glory to anybody else except God in this rebellious state. He'll even worship himself and think that, you know, I'm something. When the true fulfillment and the true purpose comes from God. This idolatry comes through ideology. Comes through philosophy. I think it would be helpful if we think of human beings as hardware. We're the hardware. We're all fairly familiar with computerization in our digital society. We're the hardware. Installed on every piece of equipment is the operating system. And the operating system just takes care of basic functions of survival. The way we eat, the way we digest food. Uh, just staying alive, That's op- every human being has that installed. Then you install applications into that operating system. And those applications dictate how the hardware behaves. And those applications are philosophies. They're ideologies. And as, as parents, what we do is we install ideology into our children. And so they grow up celebrating Christmas, Easter, or whatever, and they just do what everybody else around them does. But if they were born in somewhere, another part of the world, they would have a different programming language or programming application installed. And that application would dictate the decisions they make, who they marry, how they live, what they eat. It's all these applications that get installed. But when I say applications, most of us will think of sort of Microsoft Office as applications. I think the kind of applications we need to think about are software viruses. That's what gets installed. These viruses get installed in our minds, and they're designed to take over and turn us away from Christ towards idols and the worship of idols. And there are viruses that we don't even notice that how they get in. They just get in and then they take over. And not only that, they're contagious. So we spread them to others. 
And so the way to understand the world is to look at the world as hardware walking up and down with viruses, people catching viruses. And so we need to say, like, what are these viruses that are dictating how people behave? So if we look at America today, the amount of violence and civil unrest, this is all from idea viruses that people are catching, like you catch the flu. And this is what's causing this sort of violence and unrest in society. So if we're to understand our world, we need to look for patient zero. Patient zero is sort of that, that first person who caught the virus. So when they were studying the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, for example, they found a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Gaetan, Gaetan Dugas, who was a flight attendant that worked for Air Canada, homosexual man that lived in, Mont in Quebec City, and uh, he was just very um, pro pro promiscuous. And that's how AIDS just started to spread like crazy into the homosexual community. So part of trying to solve this problem was to identify patient zero. And then when they could identify him to then see how the, how the virus spread. So if we're going to understand our world, who are the patient zeros? Where did these ideologies begin that have been spreading and dictating how people behave? Does that make sense? So let's look at a couple of these, or a few of these, patient zeros. And I will say that if you look at the Egyptian society that ran for 3,000 years, you don't run a society like that, a great empire like that, without ideology. There needs to be a software program installed in the whole society that reverences Pharaoh as God. And everybody believes the same thing. And that's how you have a stable society for 3,000 years where people are willing to be subjugated and turn away from Christ. Before, I, before we talk about patient zero, let's go to Luke 22 first. Luke 22, and look at verse 24. There was also a strife among the disciples, and the, the strife was about which of them should be accounted the greatest. So these disciples were there. They were talking about different things. Christ said one of them was going to betray him. They didn't know who that was going to be, but then they got into the real, the real thing that really mattered to them. Which one of them? You know, they all had different abilities and levels of intelligence, which one's going to be the greatest? And Christ said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. So this is, this is different. So there's Israel, and then there's the Gentiles. And Christ is saying, you're going to notice something that's different about me and the kingdom that I'm establishing and the way the Gentiles rule. They have an ideology that enables them to exercise lordship over their subjects. And then the subjects, willing to become idolaters, they and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. So the man that is created to become a king priest in his own right, instead of being a king priest, he's happy to be a subject to a Gentile king. And to call that Gentile king then his benefactor. So the Pharaoh who oppresses us is our benefactor. The czar, the emperor, whoever these Gentile rulers are, we praise them. And we do the same thing. Every four years, it's election time. I really, really believe in this man. He's, he's the answer. He's the savior. And then eight years later, the country is in the worst shape. It has ever been in. And we call them benefactors. And I do think, brethren, we need to be careful. In just a, less than a week, the president-elect, Trump, will be sworn into office. Is he our savior? 
Is he our benefactor? Or is he a flawed man with flawed character that is going to make the mistakes that Gentile kings make? You don't develop Christian character overnight. So you can say the right things to appeal to your voting block, but that is not how you develop character. And I think that what I will say about Donald Trump is he's an American. He's an American. And through the democratic process, Americans have voted for him. But I'll tell you, I don't know if he'll be inaugurated. The, the, the polarization that people hate this man. They, I mean, even my uh, brother-in-law called him evil. Like, evil? Define evil. I mean, this is a religious term now, and you're secular. But they, they hate this man. And then also, you have people who just love him. He walks on water. And, and surely we cannot be in this camp, brethren. He's a man. Maybe through him, Christians will be safer. Maybe through him, Israel will be safer. But he's no savior. And we cannot fall into this trap of calling these oppressors benefactors. They're selfish. They look after their own ends. And their subjects get caught in the crossfire. And I certainly wish uh, Donald Trump all the success. And you know what? I thought he was a fool. But I've listened to his interviews. The man is well informed. He's well informed about foreign affairs. And as I said, he's an American. So uh, maybe America has a window. Will they repent in that window? Uh, I don't know. But here we see Christ is saying, don't be like this. The subjects call them benefactors, and they're not. They're just there to exercise lordship. You shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as him that serves. So this is a very completely different approach because you're dealing with king priests. If you're going to be over men and women in my kingdom, recognize them for who they are. They're king priests. Don't make an idol out of yourself. Don't subjugate them and put yourself between me and them. Serve them so they can have a relationship directly with me. And that's the kind of kingdom that God wants to institute in the earth. But we just see over and over this uh, subjugation of men. And we won't turn the to Jeremiah 17. Uh, Jeremiah says in verse 5, Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm and whose heart departs from the Lord. So we don't look to men. We don't look to men. We're going to pray for our leaders, especially when we see some semblance of Christian ethics and Christian orientation. But uh, we don't look to men. God says, cursed are the men who look to men. Idea viruses. Philosophers are the programmers. Every philosopher is a programmer. And his idea, his philosophy is a virus. And he is injecting it, installing it into his followers. And if they believe it and get excited about it, they spread it to others. And then people govern their lives by that philosophy. So today, and I can't be exhaustive here, but who are the patient zeros? And I call them, even though they're the programmer, they're the patient as well. Because the real programmer is Satan. Satan is the programmer. And he just uses these philosophers, and they themselves are victims. So I would say today, as we look at society, the big ideas that are programming everyone in Western society, and that people are living their lives by, number one is Nimrod, obviously. So this, what Christ said, where the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship, this comes from Nimrod. This is Nimrod ideology that has gone into every civilization and everyone has adopted. 
The second programmer is Plato. Plato's ideas through Alexander the Great spread to the whole world. And this view of spirit being good and matter being evil and that coming into Christianity. So when we say the Christian world, it's really the Platonic world. So what we know as traditional Christianity, this is Plato. So this has governed or this is programming many people and they govern their lives and view the world through Plato philosophy. Another big programmer and patient, zero, is Karl Marx. Karl Marx, this Jewish philosopher, extremely intelligent man, who looked at society and saw the, the, the Nimrod oppression in society and saw that there were the haves and the have-nots and really put some thought to this and came up with a phenomenal ideology known as communism, which was to make all things fair. That, what is the saying, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to their means. Sounds almost biblical. Sounds so idealistic. And what these philosophers do is they present ideology in the most flattering ways, in the most idealistic ways that people buy into it, and then Satan runs wild and destroys the relationship that men have or could have with Christ. Karl Marx is a big one, much, much bigger than we imagine. Another one, another Jewish philosopher, psychoanalyst, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. Our whole approach to sexuality today and the deviation in sexuality, a lot of it can be traced back to this man, Sigmund Freud, and the destruction of the family back to this man. To sort of speed things up now and come to the modern world, a significant impact philosophically on our world comes from the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School. This was, a, again, a Jewish think tank. These Jewish philosophers have had tremendous impact. The people that God has chosen have done a tremendous work in turning people away from God. But that doesn't negate the promise. And people have trouble with this. They have this conspiracy theory that the Jews are running the world and, and the Jews can't be God's people. And Let God decide. But the Frankfurt School, made up of these philosophers, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, Walter Benjamin, Friedrich Pollock, Leo Lowenthal, and Eric Fromm. These philosophers were Marxists. They were communists. And they were struggling against fascist Germany and Hitler. And when Hitler came to power, they had to run for their lives. And they fled to America. And when they came to America, they came to America promoting Marxist ideology. And they could get no traction. None. People weren't interested. And so they scratched their head and they said, why are people not interested in this wonderful ideology? They're making this appeal. The bourgeoisie have everything. The proletariat, we have nothing. Rise up, workers of the world. Fell on deaf ears. And it fell on deaf ears because America was structured differently. Between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat was the middle class. And the middle class could see the American dream. If we work hard... We can lift ourselves out of poverty. We can set up the next generation. And then they can carry on. And they can actually get somewhere. So Americans did not buy into Marxist ideology. This Frankfurt School came into the universities of America. And took over the academic world. And what they did was they changed Marxism to be from an economic theory to a cultural one. They basically said, if Marxism is going to succeed in the West, 
then it must be cultural Marxism, not economic Marxism. The essence of Marxism is conflict, the haves and the have-nots. And so what they decided to do in order to advance Marxism is to say, let us, rather than workers of the world unite, oppressed unite. Let us get the blacks to rise up against the whites because the blacks are oppressed. Let's get women to rise up against men because women are oppressed. Let's get homosexuals to rise up against heterosexuals because homosexuals are oppressed. And so every underprivileged group they basically developed curriculum to galvanize that group against the privileged. And this cultural Marxism, which is based in critical theory and conflict, has spread throughout all Western civilizations. And if you are a white Christian male, you are privileged and under attack. And it makes so much sense now. Now we can understand why feminists who are against rape, will not stand up to Muslims who their ideology says they're allowed to rape. And all over Western civilization, they're raping women. You don't hear anything from feminists. It makes sense that homosexuals who are thrown off buildings in Islamic countries have nothing to say when it comes to Islam. Because Islam, through Marxist theory, is underprivileged. And it must be supported to overthrow the privileged white male. So this Karl Marx, and now the Frankfurt School of Philosophy, is this idea virus that has spread in Western civilization. And it's programming our young people. And so to have young people who actually understand the biblical text and want to understand it, this is phenomenal. Because in most churches, the older generation is dying and the younger generation is infected with Marxist theory. And so when Donald Trump, the president-elect, is sworn in, expect riots. Because this has been building for decades. This began in the 1930s, came to um, bloom in the 60s and the revolution of the 60s and has been growing ever since. And so all of this conflict in society is coming from these idea viruses. And then we come into the postmodernists who build on this, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. And then obviously from the East we have Muhammad as patient zero and the ideologies that he spread. So with that as background, Let's come back now to the prophetic text, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 15. And I will say, by the way, as I'm, I'm going here, uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, is a Marxist. That's why, eight years after America having her first black president, there is more racial tension and rioting and murder than eight years ago. Because he was a student of Saul Olinsky, and Saul Olinsky was a student of Henry Marcuse of the Frankfurt School, of, of cultural Marxism, that you have to go to the underprivileged and galvanize them to fight against the privileged. So these ideas, we have to trace them and understand them. Matthew 24, verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. So yes, this is prophetic. But I'd like us to think of it more from the perspective of the purpose of God. This, is, this has to do with the purpose of God. That the purpose of God, as we heard in the prayer by Pastor Murray, is to have man in his image. For us to reflect his glory. 
for us to be king priests and not to be oppressed, but rather that those who rule over us actually serve us and, and allow us to have our dignity in our relationship directly with God. But since Nimrod post-flood, we have ideologies in the earth that say that men have the right to oppress other men, to subjugate others, to interfere, to become their idols, and to interfere with the direct relationship that we can have with God. And Matthew 24, verse 15, is the culmination, it is the triumph of Nimrod philosophy. That this satanic philosophy targets Jerusalem and sets up the abomination that makes desolate. There's a proverb that says that the righteous man is an abomination to the wicked. But the deeds of the wicked are an abomination to the righteous. So, so this abomination, it's only an abomination to God and God's people. To the Nimrod Babylonians, this is wonderful. We have triumphed. That competing ideology that says Christ is king, we've triumphed. And we're setting up our religion and our ideology and our philosophy right in Jerusalem to show that we have triumphed. But whoso reads, let him understand that at the very moment of the triumph of Nimrod, the triumph of Babylonian philosophy, those of us who understand realize this is the end. This is the best they can do. And Christ has already triumphed. So just when it looks darkest, just when it looks that all hope is lost, we understand. The wicked don't understand, but the righteous understand. Hold your place here and look at Micah 4. Micah 4 and verse 1. They want to destroy Jerusalem. They want to destroy every person in Jerusalem. That is attached to God. But Micah 4 shows us. And he's only one of many prophets that show us this. In the last days. No matter how it looks. It shall come to pass. That the mountain of the house of the Lord. Shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow unto it. This is Jerusalem. And many nations shall come and say. Finally, all these nations that have been infected by the Nimrod virus, they're going to come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us, teach us of his ways, how, how to govern yourself, how to govern others, how to have a relationship with God, how to be a king priest. He's going to show us this and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So says your God. So says your God. They think at the moment they think they have triumphed. They have proven that God is king. They have proven that Christ is king, that he has already triumphed. And what he says will come to pass. Let's go back to Matthew. Here's the problem with Jerusalem. Matthew 23 and verse 33. Matthew 23 and verse 33. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Here's the problem with Jerusalem. The very people that should reflect God's glory, they themselves have adopted Nimrod philosophy. They themselves are subjugating the people of God. The very people, the very leaders of Jerusalem are oppressing God's people. Therefore, behold, 
I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify because you're working for the devil. The very leaders of God are working for the devil. They have caught the idea virus. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. In the very synagogues you're going to scourge my prophets and persecute them from city to city so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, upon you leaders of Jerusalem. You leaders of Jerusalem that should be king priests representing my glory, facilitating a relationship with me in the earth and reigning righteously. All the blood is going to come upon you. Verse 37. You, you, you hear the plea of God for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. My heart is breaking for you. I love you. I have plans for you. I'm going to establish you. And look what you're doing. You're fighting against me. And you're supporting the devil. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together? I would have done this over and over for you, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. As a hen, when she wants to protect the chicks, this is what she does automatically. And they all come under her. I would have done this for you. You're fighting against me. You're turning to idolatry. And you're turning my people to idolatry. And you're killing the prophets that I send to you. But I would have gathered you, but you wouldn't have it. Then verse 38. This is the desolation. This is the desolation. The abomination of desolation. Yes, it comes from the followers of Nimrod. But it's allowed by God. By covenant. By decree. We signed an agreement. If you do this, I'll do this. But if you do this, I'll do this. And so we only have to go to Deuteronomy 28 to see the terms and conditions. And you violated those terms and conditions. So for me to be faithful to the agreement, I have to follow through. And now you have to become desolate because of your violation. And and when we read the curses in Deuteronomy 28, oh no, oh dear, these are terrible curses. You, You don't want this upon anybody, but you agreed. And so God is faithful. Your house is left unto you desolate. So Satan is going to come in and set up the abomination of desolation. And there'll be no mercy, according to the decree. This is God's faithfulness to the agreement. We come into Matthew 24 now. And in verse 4. When they're wondering when these things are going to happen, that Jerusalem is going to be desolate, not, the temple will be completely destroyed, that the symbol of their relationship to God will com- be completely destroyed. When will this happen? And before answering, he says in verse 4, take heed that no one deceives you. You're going to see Jerusalem bulldozed. You're going to see Jerusalem desolate. And people are going to be telling you it's because God has forsaken Jerusalem. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It is the Deuteronomic contract. And I have to fulfill the contract. And so Jerusalem will be left desolate. They've asked for it. They've volunteered for it. But it doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. Through Christ, they will be restored. Through the Passover, they will be restored. And there will be a second exodus to bring them out of this subjugation and put them back in the position that God intended from the beginning. So the agreement with Israel is a forever agreement. It's, it's not a fickle agreement. It's forever. Let's just spend a little time in Daniel. I realize that the time is getting on, but just spend a little time in Daniel, Daniel 9. Because this is what Christ is quoting. Verse 
Daniel 9, verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, this is Daniel speaking, even the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill and understanding. So, so we have to go back to what was revealed to Daniel because Daniel had this skill and understanding, which whoever reads what's going to happen, Christ's prophecy, we need to come back to Daniel's prophecy to understand. In verse 23, the latter part, he says, you're greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Then he goes through these 70 weeks uh, prophecy. I won't get into that because I think that is, we do need to understand that. But people spend a lot of time and waste a lot of time trying to calculate when Christ is going to return. I don't think that's the intent. I think whoso readeth, let him understand. The intent is, yes, this is going to happen to Jerusalem. Yes, the abomination is going to be set up in Jerusalem, which looks like Jerusalem has been forsaken. But don't be deceived. God has not forsaken Jerusalem. Let's look at Daniel 25 verse 25 know therefore and understand so know therefore and understand whoso readeth let him understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build jerusalem unto, unto the messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times so again we won't go through all of this but we're understanding that god has not forsaken jerusalem chapter 11 Chapter 11 and verse 31, an arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. This is going to happen. And shall take away the daily sacrifice. They're going, to, they're going to have power over God's people. And they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. This is the triumph of Nimrod. This is the triumph of this ideology that they have galvanized people. So Christ says that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. It reminds me of a, a general that he was asked by the uh, commanding officer, what's our situation? And the, the general said, well, picture a donut. We're the whole. And that's exactly Jerusalem, that they're going to be surrounded by armies that hate them. And the abomination of desolation will be set up to show the triumph of these evil people. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Okay, so this really represents Israel's Red Sea. Israel has her back against the wall. And the only way out, otherwise they'll be completely destroyed, is if God parts the sea. And this is, that's their exodus. This is, our, this is our modern exodus. That when this happens, this ideology will be worldwide. And it will be triumphant. And those who understand will understand this is the darkest point before dawn. This is the best that the forces of evil can do. This is the triumph of Satan, which is temporary. Christ has already won. And then we'll go into that uh, at the Bible study where we'll talk about the, and preparing for Passover, where we'll talk about the triumph of Christ. But let's uh, go to Matthew 28. As we wind up, Matthew 28, this is what we must understand. If we, if we were to go into Daniel in detail and study the prophecy and what was revealed to Daniel, this is what we would understand. Matthew 28. <clears throat> Verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So whatever triumph these Gentile kings have, they cannot have it unless God permits it. Because Christ has succeeded. It's a, it's a very different approach. So that the Nimrod approach is, we expand our empire through force. We conquer. And through conquest, we expand our empire. And we force people to do what we say and to think properly. And political correctness is not new. 
it goes back to Nimrod. This is how the Gentile kings work. Christ expands his empire the opposite way. He comes to earth and he allows them to brutalize him. And he doesn't say a word. He allows them to subjugate. He he allows them to bring all of their force against him. And he's the perfect sacrifice. And he goes down in love. In love for you. In love for you. In love for all of us. And through this love and his death, he conquers all. He's triumphant. It's the exact opposite approach. His empire spreads through love and through humility. And there's nothing the devil can do to overcome this. In fact, he's already won. And so he says here now as a result that he's given the highest office and every knee shall bow to him. And all power has been given to him in heaven and in the earth. You therefore go and teach all nations. And right before that scripture that says, whoso reads, let him understand, it says, this gospel shall be preached in all the world to all nations as a witness. We need to tell all nations who are bought into this Nimrod philosophy and these idea viruses, we need to show them a better way. And the better way is to love. The better way is humility. The better way is Christ. And that's what we need to do. We need to show all nations this baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I commanded you. And lo, even though it may not look like it, even though it looks like Satan has triumphed, he hasn't. You are Christians. You follow me. I was humble. I was obedient unto death. You do the same. And I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit that will enable you to do so. Always, I'm with you, even to the end of the world. Whoso reads, let him understand. Let's conclude in Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Revelation 5, this is where it's heading, in Jerusalem. And they sung, verse 9, a new song, saying, You are worthy, you Christ, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain. This is the triumph. This, This is the paradoxical triumph. This is why every year at Passover we need to rehearse this. And understand it more deeply. This is the triumph. It's not force. It's not subjugation. It's humility. It's love. This is the triumph. You were slain. You, God, came into the earth. And you were slain. And in that slaying, brethren... He fulfills the the Deuteronomic contract. That agreement with Israel that says you have to be exiled. You have to leave the land because of your sin. When Christ comes as the representative of Israel and he allows himself to suffer and be slain, he satisfies the the Deuteronomic contract. And now Israel can be brought back into the land. The triumph is through Passover. The triumph is through the slain. You were slain. And because you were slain, you have redeemed us, Israel. Not everybody. Israel. You've got to come into Israel. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred. Again, to the study, the youth study. Every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The door of Israel. The doors of Israel are open to everybody, even Ishmael. But you have to come through this covenant. And the conditions of the covenant have to be satisfied. And Christ satisfies the conditions of the covenant. And so now we can come into Israel and we can be the king priest we were meant to be when God created Adam 
and Eve. You were slain and you redeemed us to your, to your God by your blood to satisfy the covenant out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us what you wanted Adam to be, what you wanted Israel to be. Now you, as the representative of Israel and the perfect sacrifice, you have made us Israel, the new Israel, the believing Israel, unto our God, kings and priests. And we don't buy into the Nimrod philosophy. We don't buy into all these ideologies, these viruses that cause men to idolize other men. Instead, we facilitate as king priests the relationship of humanity with Christ. You've made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign, and by implication, we shall reign righteously, we shall reign faithfully on the earth, the land, the promised land, the covenanted land. So brethren, whoso readeth, let him understand. At the darkest hour, that's the best that Satan has. That's it. That's it. Let him understand that the kingdoms of this world have done their worst and they have failed. They have presented their best ideologies and they have not prevailed. The lamb, the lion of Judah, has prevailed. In his death, he has conquered the grave. And in his rising from the dead, he has redeemed Israel. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.